Well, good morning. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Adam Ratcliffe. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors at All Saints Presbyterian Church here in Austin, as well as planting a new church out of All Saints called Resurrection Presbyterian in Northwest Austin, uh, Lord willing, in 2024, this year. So you can be praying for me. Um, we're excited about that. We're beginning core group gatherings next Sunday, and God is continuing to raise up people from our church to, to join us. But uh, I am very grateful for the invitation from your pastor to be back at Christ the King and to open God's word with you uh, and to preach a, a passage about Christ the King. So we're going to be in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. I'll be reading through the end of verse 46. This is Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a weighty text that we're considering this morning, and I feel completely inadequate. So we pray that you'd come by your Spirit and do the work that only you can do. You convict and encourage and awaken, cause us to embrace Christ Jesus as he has offered us in the gospel. For we pray in his name. Amen. One of the other pastors at All Saints, Josh Keller, who many of you probably know. I know he's preached here on occasion. Uh, he recently preached a sermon entitled The End of Prayer. We were doing a series at All Saints called On the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of that sermon, Josh used a memorable illustration about Mozart and his dad, Leopold. He told the story of how Mozart, at times, would come home late at night after everyone had already gone to bed and he would just bang away on his piano. Well, one thing he wouldn't do is he wouldn't play the last note. 
of the song. And it drove his dad absolutely crazy. And so much so that he'd have to get out of bed, go downstairs and play it. And then go back upstairs to go to bed. And Josh said, soon God will send Jesus down the stairs and he will put his hands on the keys of the piano of history and he will play that last note. This morning, we're going to pick up there by considering that last note in Matthew 25, which begins with the words, when the Son of Man comes. As you know, we just came out of the season of Advent and Christmas. We're entering Epiphany. And as Christians, we believe that the Son of God took on human flesh. He lived the life that we couldn't live. Died the death we deserved to die. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And he now reigns as king over the universe. And will come again to establish for all eternity his kingdom on earth. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer each and every week, that's what we are praying for, right? We are praying for the kingdom of Christ the King to come once and for all. But one question that this passage puts before us this morning is, are we ready for him? Christians throughout the centuries have affirmed their faith using one of the ancient creeds. We'll often use the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which affirm essential truths of the Christian faith. And we usually start by saying, Christian, what do you believe? And one of the truths that we affirm in those creeds is this. I believe that Jesus ascended into heaven and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So we believe, right, that Jesus is coming to judge. And I suspect that for some of us here at least, even the thought of that terrifies us if we're being honest with ourselves. That that is not a comforting or exciting truth in the least. It is only concerning because... You don't really have any confidence in where you stand before the judge this morning. By the year 1735, news of the New England revival, what would later be known as the first great awakening in America, had reached the shores of the British Isles. And Jonathan Edwards, the well-known pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, who had preached both sinners in the hands of an angry God as well as heaven is a world of love. He was asked to give an account of the miraculous work of God there because many in New England had come to faith in Christ in a very short period of time. But early on in his narrative of surprising conversions, Edwards shares the story of how the sudden death of two young people was used by God to awaken others in the town. As he puts it, to the great things of the eternal world. Maybe you've had something similar happen to you. For me, it was recently hearing the news of someone my age, a pastor, dying in their sleep, very unexpectedly. And I'm just lying in my bed at night thinking to myself, most nights I don't give a second thought to whether or not I will wake up in the morning. I just take it for granted. Whether I die tomorrow or I'm alive when Christ returns, am I ready to see him? Are you? 
I think passages like this are in the Bible to wake us up to, as Edwards says, the great things of the eternal world. And so if this text this morning comes across as more of a wake-up call than a word of comfort for some of us, know that in every warning in the Bible, there's also an invitation. So let's hear Jesus wooing us to himself this morning and away from a selfish spirit that will keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. I have 20 minutes to talk about eternity, so pray for me. 20 minutes. So only two points today. When the Son of Man comes, first, what will he do? And then second, what has he done? What will he do? We'll spend more time on that. And then second, what has he done? Look with me at verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. A couple things to consider here. That title, Son of Man, is used over 80 times in the Gospels with very deep Old Testament roots. It's, in fact, Jesus' favorite way to talk about himself by identifying as one of us. Way back in the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, and this is what he sees in that vision. This is Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. That day that Daniel saw way back then is this day in Matthew. That at his first coming, there weren't many who saw Jesus' glory. Right? Born as a peasant, ministered among the poor, crucified as a criminal. He had no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. By all appearances, Jesus was inglorious, which is how millions see him today. And probably some of us this morning see him that way. But they won't on that day. Because when the Son of Man comes with all the host of heaven to take his seat on the throne, there will be no mistaking who the king is. And we will either marvel at him or we will melt in fear before him. But in that moment, when we see his glory, as Paul tells us, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you and I don't acknowledge him as Lord now, we will then, only it will be too late. Jesus says he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations, everyone who has ever lived from everywhere will be gathered before him. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher from the 1800s, paints a picture of this great gathering of people like this. He says, multitudes will be gathered together, their bones will come together, and breath will enter their bodies anew, and they will live once more. Even though they have slept long in the tomb, they will all rise with one impulse and have just one thought. 
I am about to appear before the judge. If you remember, back in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus had said this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So the great commission of Matthew 28 is now complete. Jesus has received the full reward of his sacrifice because in his first coming, as Revelation tells us, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, which means that his death on the cross didn't just make redemption possible for some people. But he was slain to secure the salvation of a specific people. Because look what it says there in verse 32. It says, He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Notice how intimate and individual this scene is. And he's separating one person from another, just like a shepherd would do, standing in the middle of his flock. And he knows exactly those who are his, and none will be missing. And then comes the judgment, verses 34 and 41. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now who here doesn't want to hear those words? Like, let them wash over you. That's worth a whole sermon right there, right? What is this inheritance that awaits those blessed by the Father? Here's what we know for sure. Paul tells us, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And who here among us could ever love God if he didn't first love us? But what comes next should cause each of us to shudder. Verse 41, Jesus says, Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I want us to see that there are only two destinies for each one of us. Either eternal pleasure with God or eternal punishment apart from God. No exceptions and no do-overs. Now this is really important to get. What is the basis of Jesus' judgment here? Did you catch it? What is the evidence that's presented before the bar of God's court that leads to either eternal life or to eternal punishment? Because there are millions of people who profess to follow Jesus, but their lives prove otherwise. And on judgment day, the evidence is presented and we are exposed either as sheep or as goats. So what is that evidence? Verse 35, to the blessed, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And to those on his left, he says, you didn't do any of those things. But did you notice how both groups are surprised by what Jesus says here? Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And what is Jesus' response? Verse 40. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now at this point in my sermon prep, I took a big step back and I began thinking of a long list of passages that speak to our obligation to the poor. And we'll consider just a couple here. But I think each of us needs to stop and ask ourselves an eternally important diagnostic question. And it's this. Is your life and mine marked by compassion for the poor, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is who Jesus has in mind here in verse 40? Do we have concern, compassion for those here in Austin and around the world who have urgent physical and spiritual needs? And does that compassion then lead us to sacrificial love in order to meet those needs? Or do we turn a blind eye and behave like they don't exist? This text teaches us that those who follow and know Jesus are united to him by faith and are therefore members of his body, the church. Which means that when we show mercy to other members of his body who are hungry, homeless, naked, sick, or in prison, Jesus says we do it to him so what is the evidence the proof that our faith is real it's when it is expressed in love especially toward the least that's the distinguishing mark of a Christian here's why when we embrace Jesus Christ by faith God the Holy Spirit who is love indwells us And the inevitable fruit from our union with Christ, animated by the Spirit, is love for God and love for others. It can't be any other way. That if our faith doesn't produce that kind of fruit, that kind of compassion, then we simply aren't a Christian. Let me give a couple texts to support that claim. This is how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Only one thing counts. One thing counts, faith expressing itself in love. He goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, Through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember the man who came up to Jesus in Luke chapter 10 trying to justify himself? And he asked him the question, All right then, buddy, who is my neighbor? Who is my brother or sister in need? Because he had just asked what you and I are asking this morning. What must I do to inherit eternal life when the Son of Man comes? So Jesus, what does he do? He tells him a story about a Samaritan who showed sacrificial love to a Jewish man who had been beaten and left for dead. And Jesus says to him, Who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go 
and do likewise. In other words, who proves to be a Christian, an heir of eternal life? Answer, those whose faith is expressed in love to the poor, the destitute, the left for dead, the least of these my brothers for Jesus' sake. Or take 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Speaking of Christians. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What about James 2, 15 through 17? This one really hurts. James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so when we, as a church and as individuals, stop to consider our brothers and sisters in Christ, both here and around the world, who have urgent physical and spiritual needs, how can we hoard our wealth and our resources while they go without daily necessities? John Calvin, commenting on this passage, put it this way. He writes, Whenever we are reluctant to assist the poor, let us place before our eyes the Son of God to whom it would be base sacrilege to refuse anything. I started with a, a quote from one Keller. Let me offer a different quote from a different Keller, this time Tim Keller, who puts a fine point on this in his book, Generous Justice. Listen to what he says. Some years ago, I heard a man relate the experience of a wealthy older woman that he once knew. She had never married and had no children to serve as heirs. She had only one close relative, a nephew who hoped to inherit her money. He had always been gracious and attentive in her presence, but she had heard things from others that made her doubt her impression. The disposal of her wealth was no small matter. She had to be sure that the person who received it would use it wisely and generously. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. One morning, she dressed in tattered clothes appearing to be a homeless person and lay on the steps of his urban townhouse. When he came out, he cursed at her and told her to leave or he would call the police. And so he knew, so she knew what his heart was really like. His response to the poor woman revealed his true nature. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. The God of the Bible says, as it were, I am the poor on your step. Your attitude toward them reveals what your true attitude is toward me. A life poured out in doing justice for the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true gospel faith. So let's be crystal clear here. Jesus isn't teaching salvation by social justice here. That's not what he's saying. That you just start giving to those in need and you'll get into heaven. That if you want to be blessed by my Father, then you better start being more merciful. That's not what's going on here. Instead, the point is, costly compassion, hear this, costly compassion is the inevitable consequence of conversion, not its cause. 
Love for the least is the inevitable fruit of a living, true gospel faith. There are lots of people in the world today who are philanthropic, who want to end poverty, provide clean water to keep children from dying from preventable diseases, but they don't do it out of love for Jesus or because the gospel compels them. You don't have to be a Christian to care about the poor, but you can't be a Christian and not. Not when you consider what Christ has done for you, which leads to our second and shorter point. We don't look to our fruit for assurance of faith. We look to Christ, the object of our faith and in what he has done. This passage comes at the very end of Jesus' life. Passover was in just a couple of days from when Jesus spoke this, which means that this was mere hours before he would be betrayed and then crucified to make the eternal life promised here even possible. So when Jesus said, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, he's letting you and I know that this plan to rescue us was in place before we were even born. And he was born to bring it about. Jesus went to the cross to pay the ransom for his people so that we could inherit the kingdom. Because all we, as Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray and we could never, ever earn it. So when he says in verse 32 that he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, friends, it is because he is the shepherd who knows his sheep. And has come to bring him home. Which is exactly what was promised back in Ezekiel 34. Which was read for us just a little bit ago. Where God says in verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And so we see that this coming son of man who is both king and judge is also the good shepherd who says in John 10, I know my own and my own know me and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Could there be any greater news in all the world than that? So what is the ground of our assurance on judgment day? It's this. It's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He provides for my every need. He protects me from all my enemies and he will preserve me to the end and give me eternal life. So you see, friends, this is what produces love for the poor. It is the fruit that grows out of gospel ground. For you know the grace of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty, 
might become rich. It's when you and I finally wake up and realize that when we were hungry, he's the one who gave us food, his body broken for us. When we were thirsty, he gave us drink, his blood shed for us. When we were a stranger, he welcomed us into his family. When we were naked, he clothed us with his own righteousness. And when we were in prison, he set us free. Free to love the least of these. Free to loosen our grip on the world's goods in order to spend our lives for the good of the world. And free to enjoy him forever. So do you hear the voice of the Son of Man this morning? Will you follow the good shepherd down the path that leads to eternal life? Will you receive the king who came to give good news of an eternal kingdom and who will come again in glory to give it freely to those who have loved him by loving the least of these, his brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Father, help us even now to know the hope to which we have been called. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? Make us a hope-filled people. Make us a merciful people. Make us a people willing to sacrifice much for the sake of love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Both here around us in Austin and around the world and for any who are separated from Christ, the King, the Judge, the Shepherd this morning, even as we prepare to come to the table, awaken them to their great need and to His great glory and grace shown in the Gospel. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.